0: Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you just want to keep your Bible open there, I want to read to you one other brief passage from the Gospel of John. Just trust me, this is where it's coming from. I'm not making it up. John 13, verses 2 through 5, that says this. drying them with the towel towel that was wrapped around him. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you might give us great understanding to the role of service, since it was so much on the heart of Christ and is on your heart now. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Anyone who has ever taught children knows the value of a good object lesson. Jesus taught with object lessons. He used many. Uh, when he taught about childlike faith, he stood a child in their midst. Uh, when he healed a blind man, he had just claimed to be the light of the world. Uh, he claimed to be the bread of life, and then he fed a multitude with a small amount of food. But perhaps he saved the best for last. And that's what's recorded in what I read to you from John 13. That. That incident happened not only during the last week of Jesus' life on earth before the, resur- the crucifixion, it happened the night before the crucifixion. And That was the Thursday night, what we would call the Thursday night of that week. Jesus is giving his disciples final instructions to prepare them for his death and for his resurrection. And he gets up from the table, they are there for the Passover meal, and he takes off his outer robe, And then he wraps a towel around his waist like an apron. He pours water into a bowl, and then he begins to go man to man and wash the disciples' feet. We know that foot washing was common in those days due to the dustiness of the roads and the fact that people wore sandals. And a good host would provide a servant who would uh, work in this capacity. But if there was not a servant, it would not be the host that then would wash the people's feet. That was a job for a servant, for a slave, not a master. So what was unusual about what took place was not the fact that the disciples were having their feet washed. What was unusual is that Jesus, the master, was doing the washing. We take that now as a symbol for mutual service. Some churches still use foot washing as an ordinance in their church we view it totally as symbolic. He's modeling a behavior that we are to emulate, and that is humbling ourselves, serving one another, realizing that greatness in the kingdom of God is by the one, comes to the one who serves. And it's even more amazing to think that Jesus was considering those more important than himself in light of what he knew he would be going through just hours from then his own personal pain and suffering. I don't know about you, but when, I am, when I'm hurting or on the verge of hurting, I tend to close down and think about myself. I don't think about those uh, around me. Well, Jesus here is serving them just hours away from a torturous, torturous death. He also did not wait for God to give him perfect people to serve. We know the disciples often uh, were self-centered they argued right up to the end as to who was the greatest Uh, they often missed the points of what jesus was trying to teach and yet he served them so if we wait for the perfect time when they're perfect people who will express their gratitude when we serve them uh, that will probably never happen so all of us are to serve we're called to serve but I want us to read this about deacons because they in particular are to model for the church and lead the church uh, and live lives of service. So even as we're all to pray, as we're all to meditate on God's word, the elders are to give special attention to the ministry of prayer and the word. We're all to serve one another, but the deacons are to give special attention to that. Let's look at that for a few moment, moments. here from... 1 timothy chapter three the new testament word for deacon comes from the word to serve and to serve in a broad sense just means to meet a need to meet a need that another person has whether it's to serve them food if they're hungry whether it's to serve them water if they're thirsty or whatever it might be it occurs frequently in the new testament that that word for serve or diaconia, deacon The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, it says in 2 Corinthians 9, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks. It uses that word. Ephesians 4 says God prepares his people for works of service, same word, for works of diaconia, for deaconing, serving one another. Now, in two places, that broad term for service is used particularly For the offices in 1 Timothy 3, which we just read, and in Philippians 1, it said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and deacons. He's there not using it in a general sense of all of us serving, but of the office of deacon. A specific group of servants who are called to serve in that capacity. So the office of the deacon is based on Christ's care for the temporal needs of men and women. That's what it's based on. It's based on Christ's care for the temporal needs of men and women. And it will surprise you, if you've not studied it, to see how many promises in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, are attached to that area. Perhaps the strongest is in Matthew chapter 25. It says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus modeled serving. And that's why in Mark 10 he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I realize that some, if not many, Many of you here this morning, you are involved in serving either directly through this church or some expanded way out of it. You carry out a very unseen, behind the scenes part. And you are often in the homes of, if not only elderly, homebound, or sick. You visit, you call. Some of you are masterful writers of cards and you make phone calls that are encouraging, and you extend care through those in the name of Christ. And perhaps it's tempting for you to think, nobody sees what I do. I don't seem to be doing anything of value. Well, based on what I just read to you, I want you to know that the God who sees in secret will reward you openly. And he has pledged himself and given more promises in relation to the servant's heart than probably any other area of biblical truth. Now, we find the New Testament church choosing deacons in Acts chapter 6. It says, In those days the number of disciples was increasing, and the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you had a logistical problem. The church is increasing. They were trying to care for those who did not have food, particularly these widows. Some were from a Hebrew background. Some were from a Greek background. And for whatever reason, we're not told, but some were going without. They were being overlooked. So the 12, that is the 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it is not right right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, any teaching about deacons in the New Testament always goes back to Acts chapter 6. You have to go back to that passage I just read to you as to why those men were chosen they were chosen so that the Apostles would not neglect the ministry of the Word and prayer. That's critical. That's critical. It should remind us what the role of the elders are. Because we as elders are always tempted to get involved in things that are more of a practical, tangible nature. Those are easier to deal with, I promise you. They're easier for me to deal with than the ministry of prayer and the Word. Apparently there are already deacons in place. But this shows us the clear distinction of why they were appointed. The principle is that the elders needed help so that they would not become distracted away from their primary ministry, which is prayer and the Word. I don't want to spend much time on the qualifications of deacons. We went through qualifications for officers back in May. That's why I'm not going in detail through this passage again. Um, but just note briefly, Beginning in verse 8 and following, there are four key areas that are emphasized that should be in the lives of those who would serve as deacons. First, they must have control over themselves. And they mention that they are men of respect, they are sincere, they're not indulging in much wine, they're not pursuing dishonest gain. So the man or the men demonstrate self control, over, self-control, control over themselves. Secondly, in verse 9, they must have biblical convictions. It says they must hold, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The deep truths is the sum total of the revealed truths of the faith in the scriptures. So these men are not ignorant. They they not only know the truth, they, they live it out. It's interesting when you read, to me, one of the most moving stories in the Bible, which is the death of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, one of those deacons that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. One chapter over, when he is taken before the same court that, that condemned Jesus, though I've not counted in them themselves, I think I've read that there are over 60, 60 Old Testament quotations he gives in his testimony before the Sanhedrin. Off the top of his head, on his feet, defending himself before this court. This man knew the word. That was demonstrated. He probably knew far more scripture than most of us will ever know today. And so the deacons must have a biblical convictions. The third quality in verse 10 is they must have been tested and approved. They must undergo scrutiny. So there needs to be some kind of period of probation in which the congregation may assess character. Uh, primarily just through watching a person. And you watch and you see that they learn compassion and they learn empathy. And then it says if there's nothing against them, if there's no major reservation, then let them serve as deacons. The fourth area, I mentioned there are four areas. The fourth is the deacon has an irreproachable home life, in verse 12. Just like with candidates to serve as elders, he must demonstrate spiritual leadership in the home. For if he cares not for his immediate flock, his family, then he will not care for the larger flock. The church of God is the man engaged with the direction and care for his family. And now we come to a problem passage beginning in verse 11. Uh, Boy, I really did have a problem. I was looking at chapter 4 trying to figure out. (laughs) Saying, I don't remember seeing that. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Literally, it reads, women likewise. Now, we compare this with Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or deaconess of the church of Centria. Now, who were these women? And I read some of the best knowledgeable biblical scholars this week and they all say the same thing and basically there's two choices two options for what this can mean first is in favor of an order called deaconesses and so when verse 11 begins with in the same sense in other words like he's going in sequence this is true the elders this is true of the deacons, and in the same sense, like a third category. If you read it that way, it points to a new category, and it doesn't mean deacons' wives. It means women who are serving as deaconesses, even as that was applied to Phoebe. She was called that. Arguments in favor of deacons' wives is that these women are not directly called deaconesses like Phoebe was. And so the fact that this reference in verse 11 is sandwiched between two references to deacons because right after this verse he picks up more application of deacons, that would be an illusion that would make sense if he's referring to their wives. And so it seems to read that way. In the same way, their wives, the deacons' wives, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in all things. It's not clear. It's not clear from the passage. I'll tell you what is clear, and that is there were women serving in diaconal capacity. Even our own Book of of Church Order in the PCA says that the elders should appoint men and women in the congregation who will help to serve in various diaconal capacities. It it doesn't say diaconal capacities, it uses visiting of the sick, caring for those like that. And so there's a recognized group, a recognized group of women who were seen by the congregation as serving in that that capacity of meeting material needs of others. All right, what is the relationship? Are y'all still with me? This is kind of heady stuff for early in the morning, isn't it? Y'all awake? You look at the wrong chapter, stand in front of a couple hundred people, and you'll be awake. What's the relationship of elders and deacons? It's one of function and not of value. Elders are not more important than deacons. They are only distinct in terms of authority. Now, here's the biblical pattern. I'm going to give you the Presbyterian understanding of church government, at least in this respect, right now, okay? The pattern is that the head of the church is the Lord Jesus and his word. That's... That's our authority. That's who we look to. That's who we obey. Singular rule. And then designated underneath that is a plurality of godly men called elders. Godly men called elders who will lead the people in submission to the rule of Christ and his word. Then underneath them are deacons who become the hands and the heart and the legs, you might say, of the will of the session, the elders. So the rule of Christ and his word, underneath that is a plurality of godly men. He is appointed as elders who are to administer his word, and then the deacons become their hands and hearts to carry that out. You turn to the Bible, it gives qualifications for deacons, but there's no long list of what they're supposed to do. We can't go to a chapter and say, well, here are the five things deacons are supposed to do. And when the Bible is like that, it typically understands every situation will be different, and we ought to use our sanctified common sense as to determine that. But view deacons as the extension of the heart and the hands and the mind of the eldership in practical matters. So why is it significant to have them? First of all, they are a clear reminder of God's concern for the poor and the needy. If we don't think he cares about material, physical needs of those who have needs, why did he put deacons in the church and they're to be there perpetually? They reflect to us the heart of God toward the poor and the needy. The elders need constantly also to be reminded that their task is ministry of prayer and the word and not to be sidetracked by those other things where they can release the deacons to to take care of those. So deacons, like Chris Howard mentioned a few moments ago, they should have a sense of a call to a support role, a helping role, to help the elders so they can focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. I know of a pastor who now lives in Atlanta, used to be in California for many years, not in our denomination, but I heard him tell that when he was a young pastor and he went to this small church, In California there was an older man uh, who came to him and said pastor uh, I want to give you something I want to give you my time to take care of practical needs you have during the week so for several years this man would call this pastor and say what do you need done this week and he would say I need the brakes changed on my car he said I'll come and I'll get it and I'll go take it now the pastor would pay for it but you know how much time errands and just the the complexities of life, day-to-day life, where I need to get tires for the car, we need to get the gutters cleaned at the house. Don't worry, I'll arrange for it to be, take place. How much time? That's greatness in God's, in God's kingdom. That's behind the scenes. No one else would know. And Jesus put supreme value on serving others rather than wanting to be served. He said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and the servant of all. So true greatness, biblically defined, is serving others for the glory of God. We think it's uh, someone who's done something extraordinary in the sports world or in the, the academic field or in science or, or, or business or whatever it may be. Greatness in God's, in God's eyes is, is who has served others. Have you gotten to rub shoulders with greatness this past week? You probably have. Rather than use examples from our own church, which I easily could, I'll use those from C.J. Mahaney. He was talking about the church he pastors and said, When I think of true greatness, I think of Bryce, the godly teenage son who honors his parents and cares for his younger siblings, including his brother Eric, who suffers from autism. It's Eric, the successful businessman who volunteers each Sunday at our church to park cars. It's my daughter, Kristen, who works tirelessly in her home to care for her husband, Brian, and her three small children. <clears throat> it's Richard, the single man and postal worker, who lived a simple life so he could give generously to families who wanted to adopt children. It's Bernie and Pearl, a couple in their 80s, who, despite severe health issues, poured their hearts and lives into the small group that Bernie lived. True greatness is all around us. Do we see it? We serve by getting the truth out in word and deed. Compassion action is one example. It's one morning, really, of one day. Uh, You can serve Christ without being involved with compassion action. What's unique about it is you get to serve alongside family members and friends. There's a fellow in the inquires class right now that I met last year pulling weeds at the community gardens in Pleasant Hill. Many of you help with campus clubs. Some 35 to 40 church members volunteer with campus clubs. Over 22 members of our church volunteer with Strong Tower Fellowship. At least 10 or more are probably more involved with Covenant Care Services. At least six of you help with the campus ministry of RUF. Probably at least 10 of you are involved with the Ministry of Young Life here in town. Loads of you serve with First Presbyterian Day School. Look at this powerful promise in verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's where the focus of my study was this week, looking at that verse. Serving others just as an individual believer or as a deacon can be very demanding. The standards of the office are high. The duties can be difficult. And over time, you can become perplexed as to whether what you're doing is really helping anyone. And that's perhaps why Paul ends with a promise, because it's got discouragement built into it. Serving does. Although much of it's done in private, it is noticed by God and it's being commended by God here. The word for standing, it's hard to know exactly what it means, whether it means standing among others or standing before the Lord. And when he adds the second promise that they will gain great confidence in their faith, it probably refers to boldness before God rather than before others. If you doubt your salvation, I've mentioned to you that our assurance of salvation is built on the promises of God, and the changed life, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But often assurance comes through serving. When we see God moving us to do things we would not naturally do, like serve others, we grow in our confidence that we belong to him. Now, I want to I do something I rarely do. I want to end with reading you a section, about four paragraphs of an article. I don't know how many of you use table talk. How many do you use table talk in your devotions? All right, a number of you. If you don't have a regular devotional, and you, you can use this printed by Ligonier Ministries. One of the older men in the church here a couple of years ago told me he used that every morning, and I re-subscribed, and uh, this will be a blessing to your soul a table talk journal. It's like twenty, twenty nine dollars a year, I think, and one comes every month. Every month there's a different theme. The theme for October is dealing with death and disease. And you say, how's that deal with serving? Well, one of the many articles besides the daily readings was written by Ken Tata. Ken is the husband of Johnny Erickson Tata. They've been married next year for thirty years. And listen to what he writes about serving a wife who's quadriplegic. He writes, lots of people agree that I have a beautiful wife. With her ready smile and engaging personality, most people hardly notice her wheelchair. And when they learn that she writes books, travels extensively, and leads a dynamic ministry to people with disabilities around the globe, they are amazed. To most of the world, Johnny Erickson Tata doesn't seem disabled at all. After almost 45 years of quadriplegia, Johnny makes having hands and feet that don't work look easy. I love that about my wife. I like that she doesn't make a big deal about her spinal cord injury, but simply moves forward into life, leaning hard on the grace of God. Everybody says the same. Johnny seems normal, someone who is not defined by her disability. And then he says, I wish it was that simple. Actually, Johnny does too. Most people have no idea what it takes for my wife to simply get up in the morning. It's nearly a two-hour routine that includes giving her extensive range of motion exercises and a bed bath, going through toiletry routines, putting on her leg bag, strapping on a corset, getting her dressed, sitting her up in her wheelchair, brushing her teeth, fixing her hair and her face. And I've just described the abridged version. Plus, don't assume that at night Johnny simply jumps out of her wheelchair and into bed. It's virtually the same routine as in the morning, except in reverse. Day in, day out, 365 days. It never varies unless Johnny becomes sick, and then it's more intensive. He writes, Caring for Johnny is something I would gladly signed up to do almost 30 years ago when we took our vows on our wedding day. In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, I promised to cherish my wife and take care of her to the best of my ability. Since then, never once have I regretted my decision to marry Johnny with her quadriplegia, even in the midst of the many nightmarish ordeals related to her health and the dreary day-to-day routines. I love my wife with a love that is anchored in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't make it easy. He says, all relationships have their challenges, but when you add a chronic disability, the challenges can seem overwhelming. You could be a son caring for your father with Alzheimer's or a single mother coping with your teenage son with autism. You could be the father of a little boy with muscular dystrophy or the wife of a husband who has suffered a stroke. Disability has a way of testing even the best of relationships and daily routines that never vary. Social isolation, financial pressures, unmet expectations, and a life that is extremely atypical for most people. Without Christ firmly in the center of the suffering, a caretaker can crack under the pressure of loneliness, guilt, and despair. It is little wonder that the divorce rate in families affected by disability is nearly 80%. I've witnessed that heartbreaking reality. But I wanna read you how he closes. He closes where we started off with the passage from Mark 10, caring for someone like my wife, epitomizes the heart of Jesus who said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, it is my joy to give my life in service to Christ by caring for Johnny. Now, I want to leave you with this question. Based on the promise that God gives, that those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ. Do you think Ken Tata has a strong faith? Do you think he has confidence in his faith in Christ? Do you think he has assurance? Let's pray together. Father, we are recipients of those who have been served by Christ dying in our place to pay the price for our sin. And may our trust and hope be in him and in him only. We pray that we would see that you define greatness as serving, not by being served. We pray that you'd help us to utilize the brief time that we have in this this life, for all the people in this room that serve in a variety of capacities. May you give them strength. May you give them perspective. We pray for our deacons that you'd give them wisdom and guidance. Thank you for them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.